Hi, we're live, and it's Game Changers with me, Vicki Abelson, and my very special guest today is composer Snuffy Walden. Bravo. <laughs> who's also doing double duty working the camera, because that's, the, that's how we roll. And here is Rufus, who I know is really the star of today's show. So Snuffy. Yes, big. You're supposed to say Woody. Woody. <laughs> so... So Snuffy is filling in because, um, I, and I'm going to ask you to cheat to the camera so everybody can see your face. Okay, so, so Snuffy is filling in because um, his old friend Timothy Busfield had a, a shoot tonight and uh, had to uh, beg off at the last minute. And I was really sick and didn't know what I was going to do. And I looked at Snuffy and he grudgingly said yes. That's not what I say, grudgingly. No, but you don't really like to do this stuff, do no, you? No, it's not my favorite thing. But we're going to have fun, right? We are going to have fun. Um, and we're actually going to take your questions today. So I'm going to make sure that the, uh, that the video is working. And um, we're going we're gonna to talk to you guys. Oh, see, now the picture that's going to show is going to be just me sitting there. I hate when that happens. Okay, so no stomachs. I'm, I'm sitting in. I'm moving in. I'm tucking in. When I was sitting here with Eric McCormick, I was like, the whole thing was like sticking out. Um, <coughs> a man and his dog. Look at, look at Ruin Snuffy. Okay, Ruin, go lay down, buddy. Okay, yeah, that isn't going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen. Okay, so, <coughs> so Snuffy, we're the COVID crazies. You know this. Yeah. You've, you've watched the show a few times. You know yeah. about the people that are watching. Right. So tell us your feelings about, no, I'm serious though. What was your approach to the whole pandemic, and, and has it changed you, and how so, if? That's interesting. Yeah, my approach to the whole pandemic was pretty much don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> Just like me. me. Vicky calls me a cowboy <laughs> all the time. I didn't, I didn't concern myself with it uh, as much as Vic did. She was, like, disinfecting the groceries when they come in, and... <laughs> You know, cleaning every apple. I, I didn't do any of that. I got food takeout. I mean, I didn't go out. I really didn't. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't go out in the world much. Uh, would, do, would you say that you were? I would you say you were more productive, less productive? What do you think? Less productive. Less productive. No question. And so, you're breaking back into life now. For those of you who haven't seen it, Snuffy played out with uh, Jerry Lopez in Las Vegas recently, with um, uh, Santa Fe and the Fat City Horns. Jerry Lopez. Jerry Lopez, what did I say? Jerry. You said Joey. I said, I did? I did. Oh my gosh, Jerry, I'm sorry. I love you, Jerry. I love Jerry Lopez. And he's fantastic. Yeah. And it was really exciting to see you play out live again. How did it feel to be standing up, playing again, electric guitar on stage with an audience? How was it for you? Well, it's the first time I've stood up and played in three years. I mean, I played a little bit of guitar, but I haven't really been very involved. I've been, um, I did a television special for the West Wing, but that was back during the election. Since then, I've done a few records for friends, but for the most part, life has kind of taken over and, uh, and I haven't been that productive. Let, let's talk about that special for the West Wing. I posted the, the video. Um, I can't watch it without crying. This is, this is not, this is not biased. I really can't. You are biased. I'm not. I'm not. I can't. I was just listening to stuff to to stuff to Stuffies. I was just listening to Snuffy's instrumental album while I was getting ready because even though I kind of know Snuffy a little bit, 
I did the same preparation today that I would do for any show. I, I listened to interviews, I listened to your music, and I was really moved. I sometimes forget um, how brilliant, you, this is gonna embarrass him, he's not gonna like this, but you're brilliant. And um, your talent, let's say it's God-given, and yeah. we'll, 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 we'll give him the credit. Let's give him the credit, absolutely. So that special you did for the West Wing, you actually got to play the, 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 um, the, the, the main title. The orchestral theme, but I played it on guitar. For the first time, right? For the first Live. time, yeah. And <clears throat> so ha you hadn't been playing for a while. It was in the middle of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. There were pandemic protocols. Tell, walk us through that a little bit. How did that work? Well, they, you know, all this happened during the pandemic. And what we did is we took a live episode that we did with the West Wing and we staged it at a theater. And there was, you know, you had three different levels of quarantine you had to go through. Uh, you, you went through the first level, which got you into the back, back area. You did another level, which got you to the trailers. Then you had to do another whole level when you got to the stage. And as far as me being on stage, I had a guy who had a mask and my goggles, my shield, <laughs> standing you know, a few feet away from me, and, and between every take, he'd rush, rush over and put the mask and everything on. So it was a little disjointed. It was a little, it took away from the flow a little bit, but what happened in the end is that, you know, the magic of that piece of music that came to me, it didn't, I don't take credit for it. I, I give God the credit for that one. That one happened in 15 minutes. Tell, tell that story, Snuffy, how, how that happened. Well, I was working on, on the, I was working on a show called Sports Night with Aaron Sorkin and Tommy Shlami. And they came to me and they said, we're gonna do this show about, about the government. Uh, would you like to do it? And I loved Aaron's work, so I said, sure, let's, let's do it. And he said, I think it's gonna be an acoustic guitar show, real Americana, and I said, great, right at my alley. And as we got closer after the pilot was shot and they were cutting it, they started putting in John Williams. And they came to me and they said, well, listen, can you do, you know, orchestral, big orchestral music? And since I was going to be out of work, I said, sure. <laughs> and so I did a quick study and learned the essence of what that was about. And, and really, a good melody is still a good melody. So mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how you work it or how you surround it or how you orchestrate it or, or the kind of frills you put on it. A good melody is still a good melody. So that's the way I approached it. And I sat down and they had Randy Newman coming up with songs. They had David Crosby coming up with songs, all for the main title. And so I wasn't expecting to do the main title. And I wrote a cue for the third episode when Bartlett did his, I don't know if you guys are aware of Western. Oh, Rogers, I think but, there's some wing nuts uh, on here. Are there wing nuts on here? I'm gonna say there are. When, when Bartlett uh, did his first press conference from the Oval Room, I wrote a cue and it, it kind of wrote itself in about 15 minutes. And uh, when the executive producer came over to preview the show, uh, Tommy Shlami, and I played him the cue, he said, that's our theme. So we didn't have time to get it on the air for the first episode. So what we did was we did a synth version of the first episode. And then I was able to go in and record it with an orchestra. But it really happened in it just came to me. It just laid itself out and it came and it was, uh, it was just 
an inspiration, and I, I, I don't take credit for it. But the funny thing about it is when I had to sit down and play it on guitar, because it's all orchestral music, there's a little piano in it, but it's all orchestra. So when they asked me to do this special for them, they said, would you play it on guitar? They had seen me do an interview where I tried to pick it up and play it on guitar and kind of mumbled my way through it. And they came to me and they said, listen, we love the version you did on acoustic guitar. Could you do this on acoustic guitar live? And uh, kind of put the fear of God in me. But, <laughs> because I wasn't playing a lot and I'd never played that piece of music. It wasn't written for the guitar. So but anyway, do, that's is, a setup. It, isn't it true? Is this the show that you started playing piano for? I mean, were you a piano player? No, no. I, and I never worked with an orchestra. Yeah, I started working with orchestra for the West Wing. So, a little bit about, I mean, if you've never done something, you said you studied a little bit to get to do it. How did you teach yourself to play piano? How'd you do that? And how long did it take? You know, I played piano when I was really little. When I was five, I played piano and, and organ and stuff like that. So, I had a little bit of ability to play. Mm -hmm. But I, I have writer's chops. In other words, I can play what I write, but that's it. I mean, if you asked me to sit down and play, you know, a jazz standard or something, you'd have to put a gun to my head. I just couldn't do it. But I can play what I write. And so, after I did uh, three TV shows, 30-something, The Wonder Years, and another one called uh, The Outsiders, they asked me to do this show called I'll Fly Away. And I knew if I did another guitar show that I'd end up just being mm. a guitar composer. So I bought a piano and taught myself how to score with a piano. So how, how long was that transit? I mean, were you able to just jump right in and start doing it right away? Did you work on it for weeks, for months? Weeks. Wow. Yeah, but it was, you know, I would, I could kind of work it out and then I'd have somebody do, write it out what I played and then I'd have the brilliant Randy Kerber play it. So it wasn't that hard. I, mean, but. I think a running theme, Snuffy, in your life that I've garnered is that if somebody asks you if you can do something, you just say yes. And, uh, and you figure it out later. And you figure it out later. But that's, you know, all that's part of being an alcoholic, you know. I mean, part of that's also being a musician who's in fear of being out of work. Okay. You know, I mean, if somebody says, well, can you do this? And you realize if you don't do that, you're probably not going to eat next week. Then you say, yeah, I can do it. And you figure out a way. It's hard to imagine that there was a time in your life when that was a, uh, when that was an issue, but I know that there was some um, homelessness and living in the park, so we're going we're gonna to talk about how you came up in the ranks. But was that not good? Was I not supposed to mention that? No, that's fine. No, that's okay. I, I, I don't good. think there's anything that, that you're not willing to talk about. I don't right? have you're an open book Because you brought up alcoholism, you brought up, um, yeah. Okay, so, so you're a kid. Five, you, you, your mom made you play piano? Did you want to play piano? <laughs> Rufus, Rufus might be barking. Through. <laughs> if somebody comes to the door, Rufus is going to bark. It's just kind of... Rufus, this way. Come here, buddy. He listens to Snuffy. There you go. Come yeah. here. Sit Rufus down. is going to be this. Oh, Rufus is getting yeah. a lot of love. Sit down. Sit down. Okay. See, we should have had some, some biscuits for Rufus. Yeah. So... Did you, you have an old, you had an older brother? Did I had he... an older brother. We, you know, we played around uh, in the 50s. We would dance around with uh, brooms around our neck with on strings like we were playing guitars. And, 
you know, we, we faked it. And I played a uh, little piano and I tap danced. I did all oh, these things that... I didn't know about All that. the things your parents had me do to humiliate you. And I did all that when I was young. And then in, uh, in elementary school, I started playing in the school band. And what'd you did you play guitar? I played trombone first. No, they didn't have guitar in school. No. So it was all, you know, marches and stuff. And I played trombone and then baritone. This I did and not know. I, you didn't know that? I didn't know that. Yeah, that was fifth and sixth grade. And I played in seventh grade in Little Rock. I moved around a lot. I, I went to 13 different schools going from uh, first grade through high school. So. And why was that? What, what did your father do that caused you to move around so much? He, he and my mom didn't get along, so they would stay together for a little while, and then they'd split up, and then they'd, I'd go with one, and then I'd go with the other, and then they'd get back together, and we'd move someplace <laughs> totally different. So it was, it was uh, let's say it was... Unstable. Dis disjointed. Sure. A little disjointed. Yeah, it was unstable for sure. So you're moving around, you're playing in the school band, um, and w when do you pick up a guitar? A real guitar, not a broom. I picked up a guitar at about age 12 or 13. My grandfather gave my brother and I both guitars that Christmas, so just before I was 13. And, and what was uh, your first guitar? My first guitar was a Fender Music Maker. Ooh. Single pickup, cheapest Fender they made. Do you still and have it? No. no. That went long by the wayside. And uh, so my brother ended up taking two strings off his guitar within a month, and he was playing bass, and I was playing guitar, and we just started kind of playing around locally, and I was in junior high school then, and we put a band together. And What was the name of your first band? The first band was The Showman. The Showman. And, and did you sing? I did. My brother was the lead singer, but we cut a record uh, where I, he and I split the vocals on one Okay, side. now how do you cut a record when you're a kid? You had a rich grandfather. I love that. And so he bankrolled the... He bankrolled it and put it on his la own label and we cut a single. And Sell some records? Oh, okay. We sold them at probably a box of them at a few gigs or something. Okay, so and you're, gig so you're, gigging, you're gigging it like... When you're a preacher. Oh, Rufus. Rufus is going to... Rufus, come here, buddy. ...part of the show. Rufus, it's just kind of the way it goes. Um, come here. Uh, you, uh, Fred, um, Fred says, uh, standing ovation for I'll Fly Away. Uh, that's oh. the only show he loves more than the West Wing. Um, definitely a wing nut here. Yes, we have lots of wing nuts that are... Major wing nut. Oh, so, good, good, um, good, good, good. So you um, all understand West Wing. By the way, Tony's asking if you give master classes. And you know, that might be something you should think about doing. I love no, that idea. I've never done that. That I, might be something. I speak at, or I have spoken at schools and colleges and things like that. And try to give composers the inside view of what it's really like. Not just what they teach you in school, but mm -hmm. what the real business is like. But I've never thought of doing a master class. Okay, well, well, we'll get to the composing in a little bit. So you're playing in a band. You guys cut a record. You're, you're just early teenagers. You're playing gigs. How are you playing gigs when you're not old enough to be in a bar? Where are you playing? Uh, my parents would take us. We played it. They'd let you come into the bar if you were underage and play, but you couldn't hang out in the bar. So you'd have to hang out backstage or outside. Mm -hmm. But they'd let you into the bar. And we played this one place called... Uh, the 007, where the, uh, there was a guy there who was hawking pills. I mean, I was 15 Whoa. years old, and he's going, hey, what do you need? I got speed. I got... 
we didn't do any of that. But I do remember that as my first introduction to, oh, street drugs. Okay, know. so speaking of that, let's talk about that a bit. Yeah. Um, you just celebrated a pretty big um, sober birthday. So 41 years, pretty crazy. Um, as of right now, you have double the sobriety I do. That will change on, on Saturday if I don't drink or use. If I don't drink, oh, I don't drink Manischewitz on tomorrow night. You're not going to drink Manischewitz. not going to drink. That was my last drink, which is such another story. But anyway, okay. When did you have your first drink? I used to drink around. Uh, my family would have poker night in Texas. And they used to think it was really funny to give the kids sips of their Seagram 7 mm -hmm. and uh, watch us get drunk and kind of stumble around the living room where they're playing poker. They thought that was funny. I, I don't remember uh, too much about that except I remember just always wanting to get those drinks and that's how I broke into it. Then we, you know, in my... Did like, you like it? Did you, did, you like, did you like how it made you feel right away? I don't did remember it like that. Mm -hmm. I don't remember it. That way. I or did just you remember just I kept more. doing it. Yeah, 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 I just wanted more. I don't know if I liked it or didn't like it, but mm -hmm. whatever it was, something was working for me. Yeah. So, okay. So, I never talked to you about this. No, I don't think we have. No. But, but this, you know, we've talked before. The last time Snuffy did this was when we had very first met. Thank you, Pete George. Um, kind of a game changer right there. But we barely knew each other the last time we sat down, and it's a little different. But I, I want to ask questions that I know people out there don't know that I do, might know the answer to, but some things might come up that I don't. So, so you drank be, just because you did because it was around. When did you figure out that you liked it a lot and you were going to make that part of your life? Well, in, uh, in junior high, I got arrested for chasing a beer can, a full beer can, out into the street in front of a police car. This so I, I do guess, not know. So I guess uh, I was in ninth grade and I was hanging out with my brother and his friends and they were drinking down at the Dairy King. And uh, I got out of the car and a beer can fell out of the car, a full beer, not open. Mm -hmm. And I chased it down out into the street and there was a policeman there. So they promptly arrested me and took me to the police station and called my parents and all that. Also in high school, I was, you know, I was a, a really good student, but as I went through all the classes in my school, I got wilder and wilder. And one day a friend of ours took a, a friend of mine, and I took his girlfriend's car and uh, went out and drank a case of beer, saved her one, and drove back and had a nasty collision uh, on the way back and totaled her little Corvair Spider. Oh. But, uh, so I guess I was liking it then. That was pre-drugs. When did the drugs get into the action? Drugs came in right after that. Uh, my senior year, you know, I smoked. My brother was doing a lot of drugs at that time. And so I was smoking pot with him and did my first acid with him. We took reel-to-reel -reel tapes. And when he was gone, took all of his reel-to-reel -reel tapes and made a spider web through his whole living room. And when he got home, he wasn't happy with us, but, <laughs> but it was really fun doing it. I mean, on acid, come on, that was hysterical. Or sit in front of the TV and turn it on and off. And then we go, psh. It's <laughs> kind of things we did in Texas. So, so, but during this period, you're still being really productive. You're, you're playing. Okay, so what's your, how do you learn? Do you take Well, no, lessons? I was in, during that, during that period of time, I was, in my senior year, I quit playing. I didn't play at all my senior year. I just, 
because I got sent to military school after that accident. I got sent to military school. Then I went AWOL from there. Then I went wow. to and moved to another town and to Houston and started going to another school there and everybody I was hanging out with there. I, I became kind of a chameleon doing all those different schools and all those different communities over the year. I reached a point where I could kind of fit in anywhere. So the people I was hanging out with were all beer drinking, uh, soul music listening, uh, crazies. And so I just quit playing and went to soul clubs and heard Sam and Dave and James Brown and we drank beer and that's, you know, it was like a frat group. It was like a frat house. Did you, you didn't miss playing when you weren't playing? No. No. So how did playing happen for you? Because I know you put in your 10,000 million hours. Well, Cream and Hendrix came out right about the time I was doing this. So I started playing a little bit uh, on my own toward the end of my senior year. I started playing because when those two records came out, Fresh Cream and uh, Jimi Hendrix Experience, I was knocked out. And so I picked my guitar back up. I wasn't playing it professionally at all. I worked at a, uh, an oil painting framing factory and I did all just all kinds of weird things to go into college because I was going to be a doctor. I went in on a pre-med and math major into college and and I did that. I had an FM underground radio show and I played guitar to strip joint and college went first and then the FM radio show went out and all of a sudden when I was 18 I was playing in a strip joint for it. Tell, tell us a little bit about that Snubby. I used to play at a place some of you will know about this. If you, if you ever had a chance to look it up, there's a documentary. Up about to a, snuff, Mark No, 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 not that one. Oh, okay. There's a documentary about oh, a about club the called The Cellar Club. Ah, okay. Which was, there were three of them in Texas. The original one was in Fort Worth. Then there was one in Houston. Then there was one in Rufus. Rufus. Oh, the, dog, the other dog is barking where... Let me put him on a leash. No. You don't want me to put on my leash? No. Well, you're going to get this the whole time. Every I time know. The dog barking. We're going we're gonna to deal with it. We're going to, Rufus, we're going to be okay with Rufus. Okay. So, I don't know where I was. Um, you're talking about the cellar and the documentary. Oh, the cellar club. There's a documentary for the cellar club. The cellar club was a place that sold fake booze to people. It was open from uh, 8 o'clock at night to 6 in the morning. They would sell, sell you rum with... Uh, uh, a Coke with rum flavoring, then a Coke with, with, with whiskey flavoring. But for the band, they had something called a special, which was Everclear and grapefruit juice. And it would shine under the black lights. That's how you knew you had a special. And so the Cellar Club was a place where uh, the waitresses all wore bras and panties. That was their outfit. And then if they really wanted to get some big tips, they would close the front door and they'd be on this runway and they would strip. <laughs> and uh, so that was what I was doing. My, my family freaked out. They, they thought I was going to be a doctor and when I, they ended up seeing me playing in this strip joint. They, How did they see it? Huh? How did they see it? They heard about it. They, they heard they, about they knew it, but they didn't come down. And your mother was quite the intellectual. She had a, my mother was very much intellectual. She was nuts, crazy as a loon, but... She had many degrees, right? She had three master's degrees. Yeah, so this was not the behavior of the no, son. No, it wasn't yeah. what I was supposed to do. It wasn't what you, me, it wasn't what but uh, before we move on, how did you learn to play? Did you teach yourself? Did you take lessons? No, taught myself. Taught yourself. And do you read music? Just by listening. No, I don't read music. Don't read music. Doesn't no. read music and has <laughs> this career. Can't write music. And cannot write music. And yes, you can still do this. Okay, so 
So you're playing in this cellar and you're being a DJ and you're dropping out of college and you're doing all of this. Um, what's your, and you're, you're making scratch? You're making a little bit of money? You're making money? I'm making very little money. We were paid like eight bucks a night or something. When we moved to a cellar where we had to not stay home, we had to get two hotel rooms for one night and the next day we'd only get one and we'd put everybody's stuff in the one. That was all we could afford. And we even, uh, we were, you know, we had uh, Wonder Bread and Cold Cuts and uh, Kenny, the bass player, would hang mayonnaise in the back of the toilet so it would stay chilled. And I know it sounds awful, but um, that's just how funky it was. That was before I lived in the park. And so, all right, so what's this band that you're playing with? That called? band's called Elm Street Blues Band. And we played at the cellar and uh, that's where I met Tony and Terry and Rabbit. Terry Wilson. Uh, Tony Bronigal. Tony Rabbit. Rabbit John Bundrick from The Who. You know, that's where we all met and kind of became friends and compadres down there. It was a great club to get your chops together because if a girl got up to strip, you weren't allowed to quit playing or you were fired <laughs> and barred. So you had to learn how to, how to jam. You had to learn how to just be in the moment and play whatever happens. So, you know, it was a great, it was like a master class for me. It was, I got to go in there and play and just expand my, my vocabulary. And, but you, you know, guys John and Winter played there. Oh, really? Billy Gibbons played there. Wow. Uh, you know, ZZ Top, Dusty Hill played there. But you guys weren't playing like rock and roll covers per se. What, what, what kind of music were you We were doing everything playing? from the Doors to the to Hendrix. To, we were covering lots of stuff, but doing it in a different style. We the bands we weren't rehearsed cover bands. I was going to say you like, weren't a cover band. No, no. no, we weren't a cover band. So we'd do a Doors tune, but we do it our way, or we would do uh, a Hendrix tune, but we do it with the capability we had. And so it always came off sounding like a blues tune. <laughs> Most of them did, actually. Okay, so you're playing in the cellar and you're doing all of that. And then how? what happens after that? I go to another cellar and I played there. And okay. I went to another cellar and I played there. And then I ended up, uh, that band broke up. And I ended up living in the park for just, I don't know, it was probably three or four weeks. But I had a roadie. <laughs> I had a roadie in the park. Story. Fellow named George Maxey, who, you know, was with me throughout that whole Texas stint. But I, you know, he carried my guitar in the park and I would sit in with people and I, I wore one of those really long Indian things that had the little mirror sewed in them. Do you remember those? I remember Probably those. before your time. No, no, no. But that's what I wore. I had a red one, of course, it was red. And, mm. uh, and I washed it as often as possible, but there weren't a lot of possibilities. How did you wash yourself? I don't know. I don't know, oh maybe God. I went back to my mom's house or something. I just didn't want to live at home. It was better living in the park than it was to live at home. So, you know, I was picking up a little $10 gigs here and there. And you're drinking. You have money for, for alcohol, I assume. I don't remember drinking in those oh. days. I remember uh, my drinking really kicked back up when I joined this band called The Silver Spoon, which was two old guys. I mean, I was 18 and they were... God, 22 and 23, they were really <laughs> old guys. And I joined that band and we moved to Memphis and that's really where the drinking and drugs started. Mm -hmm. I mean, but besides the pot smoking and the acid and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And when, when I went up there, we started, you know, in the studios there, they would give you, they would have a, a Dexedrine dispenser upstairs. Oh, come guys. on. No, no, they did. At American Studios, that's where Elvis used to record. 
and they had a Dexedrine dispenser, and we used to get these crazy blue and yellow pills that if you, that one half was an upper and one half was a downer, and you'd split them in half and take the uppers all day, and then take the downers at night, and, and drink, drink on top of it. And we worked in a club, and we played, you know, six nights a week, four sets a night. And, and so, Rue, so and I'm assuming that you were playing drunk, and you were, were you recording drunk, or did you wait until you were done? You know, I played buzzed. I had a few situations where I played drunk, and I wasn't in control, and I played poorly, and so I wouldn't do that. I would, I would limit my drinking or drug use when I was on stage. Did it escalate as the years went on, or not? The on-stage part? Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe a little bit, but I got to handle it better. You know, I got better at, at, at what I could drink and what I could handle. You know. So, okay, so, so you're, na you're now playing in a different, you're, you're in the park. How do you get out of the park and how do you? Well, I went to play with this band Silver Spoon and we moved to Memphis and that's really where the drinking. Oh, where the, the dispenser was and all of that. Yeah, okay. and that's, that's where the drinking and drugging together really started. Then I moved back to Texas put together a band called The Grits, which was uh, this great female drummer that I had played with when I was 14. I did one gig with her uh, behind B.J. Thomas. We were his house band. What makes him hire a 14-year-old? Well, he was just going out with whatever band they, they put, put together. So they put this band that was together in Houston. I can't remember the name of their band. but. It was a four-piece band and their guitar player got sick, so they called me and I went out with them. And the funniest thing about it is we never saw B.J. Thomas until he walked out on the stage the first time. And he walked out and he went, barefoot, two, three, four. And we all just stood there because we didn't know cover songs. We knew animal songs or Hendrix songs, but we didn't know anything, you know, like soul-driven. So what'd you do? Music. We played whatever we knew how to play. We just didn't have all those coverage. We had learned a couple of his songs. He had a he had a big hit, a local southern hit called Billy and Sue. This was before Hooked on a Feeling. Hooked on a feeling yeah. mm -hmm. So okay, so you that was your first professional gig at fourteen. So now you're you're reunited with, with Linda Waring. Yeah, and uh, so she she got in the band. It was myself, uh, a fellow named Duke Davis on bass. Uh, I can't remember the the keyboard player's name and Linda on drums. And we had this band called The Grits, and we were really good. We played, uh, we opened a lot of shows for everybody from Lightning Hopkins to, well, let me back this up. We played mostly at a club in Austin, which was called, uh, now I'm gonna blank on it. It was Armad it turned into Armadillo Headquarters. And, and we played there the, that's all right. Yeah, Paul Williams. It'll come uh, back. Yeah. Anyway, we played there a lot, and and we played local clubs, like underground clubs, underground FM kind of clubs in uh, in Houston, and then we would play, you know, little gigs around Texas where they had to put chicken wire up in front of the bar because the cowboys, had, if you played the wrong stuff, they throw beer bottles. At you, so. <laughs> so we saw some of that, but I did that for a while, and then. Uh, How old are you during this period? I'm nineteen. 19. 19, mm -hmm. 19 and a half. Then I went out, at one point I came out to California to play in my brother's band. He had a record deal with United Artists and a band called Christopher. And I came out to play with them 
until we uh, got raided because his manager was a drug dealer from Las Vegas. And one day the police busted in the front door in the middle of rehearsal and put it, put down the guitar. And, and I'm trying to take it off. He said, drop it. And I just dropped this guitar. It's a wide open and exploded with sound. And they're going, I thought we were going to get shot. They ended up arresting uh, a couple of people. They arrested my brother. The uh, manager ran out the back door with a biker and they got away. But everybody was let off. But it was... Uh, Kind of a crazy night. Getting arrested yeah. seems to be a, th a running theme here. Um, Cop cars, ambulances, fire engines, yeah, a lot of it. Nice. So, what made you? So, you came to LA. You're night twenty-ish. What? What made? Why do you leave? I left because the band kind of was. It was a mess. Mm -hmm. The band was um, being backed by a drug dealer, and it was really unstable. And my brother was. Completely out of it, shooting speed and, and acid together. And uh, it just wasn't a good place for me to be. So I went back to Texas and I went and moved to Fort Worth. And I played around there with a couple of bands. I played with this group called Aphrodite, which, uh, which I played with for only about six or seven months until I was 20 or, or something, 20, 21. Not even 21, probably was 20. And I played with them for a little while, and then I got an opportunity to play with a, a brilliant songwriter named Jerry Williams. And we had a band called the Jerry Williams Group, which Linda was in, playing drums as well. Mm -hmm. And Randy Cates was playing bass, and Jerry Williams and I were playing guitar. He was primarily a singer. But he wrote tons of songs on the Journeyman album from Clapton, and he's written for people all over the world. He's, he's gone now. He died of alcoholism. But, mm. um, but he was brilliant. And so I got a chance to work with him, and I did. And we were coming out to California to do our first record deal, and I got hepatitis. Oh. From Ouch. playing in these scuzzy bars. And so I ended up in the hospital. You had I, hepatitis? Yeah. <laughs> really? You still have it? No. It wasn't hepatitis C. But I ended up... Uh, they told me if I went back to music, I probably wouldn't live more than a year or two. So I got a job in a music store, and it lasted months. And I just decided, you know, if this is the way I have to live, I'd rather not. I'd rather I choose to do something else. So I moved to, I joined this band, Aphrodite, which was then living in Denver. Mm -hmm. And I moved to Denver, and I would stay in bed six days a week, and then get up and do one gig with them. And until I got healthier, then I would do two gigs with them a week. And then I would do three nights with them a week. And, and I recovered from it. And I was only drinking, I wasn't drinking, they told me I couldn't ever drink again. But I was starting to drink 3-2 beer, you know, that really Ooh. nasty, watery mm -hmm. stuff they have in Colorado. Yes, they do. And uh, I started drinking that, and, and, and that band, we did real well locally in the Colorado, Wichita, Kansas, the ski resorts and stuff, we did real well. And the other, the original guitar player got so fed up with me coming in and taking over the band that he left. So we were back to being a trio again. And one night we were playing in this little club, a place called Thumbs Up, and these English guys came in. And they were talking about, oh, you guys are amazing, you should come to England. And turned out they were Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's road crew. And couple of them said, you know, we'll come back as soon as this tour is over and we'll set you up. And we thought, oh yeah, sure. And uh, 
about a month and a half later, these two guys rolled into town and said, we're going to get you, get you uh, sponsorship and we're going to take you all around, all around this tri-state area and going to make a lot of money and we're taking you to England. So we did that and we, we got a big PA they got for us through, because they were connected with Emerson Lake and Palmer. They got me and these were their roadies. These were the roadies. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And uh, they got me a, an amp endorsement. Uh, and wow. so all these things were happening and we were doing bigger gigs and promoting every gig as our last gig before our European tour. And, uh, and you're like 20 something, young. I'm 21. Probably. Oh my gosh. Okay. 21, 22 probably. Tw moved up there at 21, was probably 22 at this point. And so we did that for about four or five months. And then when I was 23, we picked up, took our money, uh, sent what gear we could afford to tend to, to London and moved over to London. Are you still Aphrodite? Have you changed the name yet? No, it's still Aphrodite uh -huh. at that point. Okay. I'm going to have to get up in a minute, you know. Okay, he's going to he's gonna take a little break and I'm going to... I'm, I'm going to take a break. break. She's going to... Okay, so, you know, because that's what happens because we're old. So th these are the things that happen. Uh, you know, I, it, it's so funny that we're doing this and it's like this really serious conversation. And, like, you know, I was watching the, the show we did four and a half years ago and it was like all smiles and music and la-di-da. We had just met each other. And uh, somebody asked how we met, and that's how we met. Uh, Pete George actually uh, made the introduction, and Snuffy did the show, and I met him for the first time in my living room when he was playing, and then he did uh, Game Changers. I th it was called Game Changers already. And uh, yeah, and it was all like happy and light, and now we're being really serious. And we're not serious. You know, it sounds like we're serious all the time. This will be the shot they'll put for the show, just me alone, as I'm, yeah, because that's what Facebook does. But anyway, I'm reading some of your, uh, let me read some of the questions. I know it's off topic, but I really want one of those coffee cups. I know, aren't they fabulous? They're Earth Cafe. And actually, Snuffy ordered them online, and you can too. You can call them up, and you can get them. It's out here. So Snuffy's being very nice. He's walking all the way. I'm telling them how we're being really serious and business-like and all that stuff and how last, the first time we did this, we had a lot of laughs and a lot of fun and we're being really serious this Are time. We so really serious? I think we need I to know. lighten the fuck up a little bit. Okay. okay. Lighten the fuck up. Well, I had a guitar in my hands. That you did have a guitar in your hands. Uh, okay. So, um, so you're Aphrodite, you're going over to London, you're 23 years old. We, and what happens? We and, got, and you're drinking? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm drinking. I'm okay. drinking. I love the pubs. I love the pubs. Love the whole pubs. thing worked for me. Okay. And we got an opportunity to audition for, we went in and cut an acetate. An acetate. For those, of the, for those out there who are young, tell well, me what an acetate is. An acetate is a very uh, crude version of a phonograph record. Mm. And you could cut them live and it would just, and they're probably only good for about 10 plays or something because they're very soft wax, but... Uh, we got an opportunity to cut an acetate and, the, and these roadies Did got Did you have original and, songs? Oh yeah. yeah, we had all original, we had a lot of original material. We had uh, other versions, uh, our versions of cover songs. Like we did a, a great version of uh, Drive My Car by the Beatles. And were we, you doing Chevrolet? We were doing Chevrolet. But anyway, so we got a chance through these roadies to get it to Greg Lake and he listened to it and <clears throat> took us into the studio and we spent a day in the studio with a couple of the, with Rabbit, the keyboard player for free and uh, The Who and uh, 
one of the guys from Traffic playing horns, and we did uh, three songs in the studio with him. And then Greg called me to meet with him, and he said, listen, we really like you. The band doesn't work for us so much. The drummer is too slow. You know, he gets better every take. You're good for a couple of takes, and then you go downhill. Because I was spontaneous. Mm -hmm. So he said, if you want to keep the band like it is, then we can't sign you. But if you want to build a new band around you, you know, we'd like to do that. So I went back and told the band this information. Oh, that must have been very popular. That was... <laughs> actually, the drummer said, you've got to do it. The wow. drummer said to me, you have to do this. This is your opportunity. So he left... Were you the lead singer of Aphrodite? Uh, myself and the bass player were. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I decided to keep the bass player, and we went looking for a drummer. We looked all around London and then came and toured America and looked all around America. And finally, in Los Angeles, found the drummer for the Noel Redding group, who was Hendrix's bass player. And he was a perfect fit for the band, a fellow named Les Sampson. So we got Les in the band and we came back and we changed the name to Stray Dog. Where'd you get the name? I think it came from uh, Greg. I'm not sure where it came from. Mm -hmm. Those aren't the things that, yeah, I was drinking a lot. I, I don't have a, well, we my want, memories are fuzzy. We want best. that part of it. We want the drinking story with the rock and roll story. because well, The drinking of, story was pretty bad. They, so. they go kind of hand in hand. Yeah, you know, I was... What happened with all that for me is that we went in and we re rehearsed and we went in to record an album. And, you know, I was 23 years old. All of a sudden I went from being a young dub kid living, living in the park to having an opportunity to be involved with these... Emerson Lake and Palmer was like huge at that time and even bigger in Europe. They used to say Keith Emerson for president of Europe. And so I had a lot of pressure on me to deliver. And we went in to start recording the record and we did the record and finished it and we liked it. A dear friend of mine now, Chris Kimsey, co-produced it with us. And we played the record for Greg and he went, no. Uh, he said, we got to go in. So Greg came in and cut a couple of songs with us and we replaced a couple of songs on the record. And all this, while the time this is going on, they're going on a world tour. So they yeah, Wait a minute, what, what songs did Greg add? It, I know the album pretty well. What songs did he add? Do you remember? There's a ballad that he had me add. Mm -hmm. There's a, a... I can't remember. There's a song called Slave that he had us add. Uh, both great songs, not great songs. Uh -huh. Greg wanted to, you know. He wanted and, to be a producer. And he was a producer. Mm -hmm. uh, if you read the credits, Greg was like, <laughs> Greg is a great guy. He really believed in me. And, you know, as much as I love hated that relationship, he, he really believed in me. What, what was the love, what was the hate part of it? Well, we just were in competition. He was the uh, alpha dog of his band. I was the alpha dog of my band. We went on. They had this world tour booked, and so they decided they were going to break us on the world tour, even though we didn't have a record out. So we went out, we started the first half of this world tour before our record was even finished. And we would go out and have situations like, we played in Paris, we played at this uh, hall in Paris, and we didn't know that uh, it was being broadcast, we knew it was being broadcast live, but we didn't know they didn't tell the audience that there was another band playing. And so... The, the, as it turns out, the French announcer got on and said in French, listen, there's going to be a little band, stray dog that's going to play first, be nice to them, 
and the curtains, op curtains opened and we started playing and people started throwing fruit at us. <laughs> and we're on a live FM broadcast in Paris <laughs> and we're dodging fruit and trying to sing. I got hit in the shoulder with a rotten apple and we found a, an orange weeks later in one of the house basements. <laughs> but, you know, why they would do that, I don't know. But, but we, we weren't known. We didn't have a record. We had nothing to promote. We were just out there opening for them to get experience. And everybody wanted to see them. Nobody wanted to see us. But we played so many great places. We played a football stadium for 50,000 people one night. What was that? Okay, so you, this is playing very different than you had played in the States. Oh, totally so <coughs> as you were making this transition to this huge rock star life, which I'm sure was something that had been a fantasy, a dream, no? It was, but you know, I really, here's where the problem was. I didn't feel like <coughs> I deserved it. I felt Ooh. like I was an imposter. And what would happen was, for me, as I look back over it, over all these years, over a lot of years of sobriety, the part of me that uh, felt completely undeserving, and the part of me that had to put up the bravado got wider and wider mm. apart, and I filled that hole with alcohol and drugs, and uh, you know, it just got worse. I, I, would, I would be okay for the gig, I would always play well, but afterwards, there was the, all bets were off, and I would just drink myself to death. I, I'll give you an example. One night, we were playing somewhere in uh, Italy, mm -hmm. and I came off stage, and this girl was being very friendly, and I was thinking, <laughs> oh, I'm gonna get lucky. And, uh, <laughs> And, and so we're making plans to go back. We've got a big dinner planned at the hotel that we did after everything with all the crew and everybody. And uh, so this girl was going to come back with me. And Greg Lake walked right off the stage and went, you, here. And she was gone. Whoa. And, and that's the kind of thing Greg and I had going. If Greg saw me with something, he wanted it. I had this great pedal board uh, with this thing called Eric, which was all these echoplexes and stuff. And... Uh, he had one build out of stainless steel, you know. <laughs> so there was always, there was a competition mm -hmm. because I was a better guitar player than he was. He was a much better songwriter, much better singer, great bass player, a good guitar player, but he had competition with me. So mm -hmm. uh, we had a, an interesting relationship. How, but, was he was older, not that much, but he was older, a little bit older? Three or four years older. Mm -hmm. Okay. It was like in Palmer. But they were huge. Yeah, he came from King Crimson and they were big and then Emerson Lake and Palmer was a super group and uh, you know, one night that night when that happened with that girl actually, I got so drunk and so angry that when I went back to the hotel, I grabbed when I went back upstairs to my room, I grabbed one of those standing ashtrays. Oh yeah. That they used to have with mm -hmm. sand in the top of it. I picked mm -hmm. it up and I did it like a like a hatchet into my door. And everybody blew up and it became a big thing. And I got called out in front of the court where Greg was sitting in a big chair at one end of the room and everybody surrounding it. And I got called out on the floor and he was telling me, we're going to, you know, you can't do this and we're going to fire you and we're going to get you off. You know, just humiliated me. And as it turns out, you did get fired, didn't you? Yeah. We were playing at Madison Square Garden. We did two nights at Madison Square Garden on Christmas, 1973. 
Four. Three. I'm going to tell you why I know this. Why? Because I had tickets for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer in Tucson in the spring of 1974. And Stray Dog wasn't there because somebody got fired in New York. Oh, that's right. That's right. Snuffy and I would have been in the Tucson whatever arena thing it was in. Because I saw Emerson. I saw that tour. And you would have been the opening act. Bryce surgery tour. You would have been the opening act on that tour had you not. Had I not. But it wasn't meant to be then. Okay, so how'd you get fired? I got so drunk after the second show and I was in, I wore this white little leather bolero suit. If you haven't seen a picture of Snuffy back in those days, he had chicken Didn't legs. Did you post some? I, I did post some and Tony made a great composite, but Snuffy had these long skinny chicken legs and he used to wear these little fur coats and these platform boots. The good old days. You had to lay down to pull off your Oh yeah, well, I, I called them chicken slacks. You had to lay down on the bed to get them on. <laughs> and he was a little thing. They were tight. I was wearing size 26 inch jeans, I think. Oh my God. Okay, so what happened? So I got really drunk the second night after the show and the, I was in a blackout because I was a blackout drinker and they rolled me down through the gutter down to the hotel because I couldn't stand up and I kept falling down. Wait, before you go on with this, you're playing Madison Square Garden, mm -hmm. which I would imagine is a pretty damn big deal for a musician. Yeah. Do, are you drunk as a skunk out of fear? Are you drunk at, at a, as a No, skunk? I didn't get drunk for the gig. I was, I was sober during the gig okay. itself. But afterwards, I was an absolute mess. Uh, yeah, it's that same old thing. It was that the way I felt, what I felt I deserved as opposed to what I had to look like. And, the, and that hole just got deeper and deeper. So it was alcoholism. Mm -hmm. That's all it was. It was just alcoholism. You know, I, Superiority complex with a huge inferiority complex, big ego with complete insecurity. You know, and the gap that that leaves in you, that mm -hmm. hole, you try to fill it with something. I didn't know to fill it with God, so I filled it with booze. Okay, so you're drunk as a skunk, Madison Square Garden. What happened? Yeah, everybody, everybody knew about it. And when we, I went back to Colorado, which is mm -hmm. where I was from, for Christmas, and I got a phone call there saying. Uh, you know, we're going to have to leave you off the tour. You can't go with us anymore. So, and is this coming from Greg Lake? Coming from Greg Lake, Manticore, that record label. That, mm -hmm. I was on their record label. So. Mm -hmm. so I was stuck with my tour manager out in Colorado. And they just shipped my clothes home. They just shipped my stuff that was in England home. I didn't even go back to England. They just shipped it to, to Colorado. Are you broken hearted? Yeah, and we, we, we moved to California. We can't, I had a girlfriend at the time who was moving to California, so I moved to California. We moved the whole band to Los Angeles in 1970. Now, wasn't the band furious with you for getting them kicked off the tour? Yeah. Yeah. Of course they were. Mm -hmm. But I was the leader of the band, so what did they do? Mm -hmm. So anyway, we moved here, and I guess it was 74. I guess. I thought it was 76, but I'm not very good with the years. Uh... <clears throat> and we came back here and we did another record. We added a keyboard player and another singer, guitar player, because they also said that, you know, my voice was too low to sing pop songs. You know, pop records were all high singers in. So we added a singer and a keyboard player. We gigged around and we rehearsed and then we recorded an album 
in 75, I guess. Who, what, what label were you on for that one? Well, that was on Manticore, but it was distributed by Motown instead of Atlantic. Mm -hmm. The first record was distributed by Atlantic. The second one was distributed by Motown. So it looks like a K-Tel cover when you look at the front of the record. <laughs> it's like this bold colors with this dog. By the way, uh, Tony's saying that you were better looking than Greg Lake, too. You look ah! There you go. He loves that, Tony. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, so we came back here. We, we regrouped in California. We did a record in 75. Went back out on the road. And in uh, 1975, we were out touring with uh, Dave Mason. And a good friend of mine, Mike Finnegan, was playing with Dave Mason, mm -hmm. and uh, we had we played. What, where did we play? El Paso the night before, and we all went across the border, and you know, after the gig, and bought mezcal and all this tequila mm -hmm. and stuff, and brought it back. And then we got on the plane, and we had the gig the next day in uh, in Detroit, and we got to Detroit, and everything went wrong. My whole rig broke down. I'll tell you a funny story. Tell, tell the story. So I had this whole rig <laughs> that I could record stuff on tapes and then I would, we were only a three-piece band at, uh, in the beginning, so I would record stuff on tapes and play it back over other, uh, on top of us playing three-piece so it sounded like a four-piece band. Well, I had this whole really elaborate rig and that night it just didn't work. So we had all these problems. We couldn't do a third of our set because it was all timed with these tapes and all kind of stuff. So we had a very frustrating night and uh, I jumped off stage at one point in the middle of this guitar solo and uh, ran down to the console where I would do this thing where they'd have a mic set up for me at the console and with the spotlight and I would scat sing to my guitar. And so that part of the show came and I jumped down off the stage and I ran down to the, to the mixing console where my mic was. And just before I got there, somebody got up. Let me preempt this. <laughs> oh, we didn't have long cords or wireless cables then. So we had to take a bunch of those curly telephone cords and, and tape them together. So that's what got me all the way to the stage. I got almost to the console Somebody got up to use the bathroom or something, stepped on the cord and it snapped and, and zit went zing back into a big pile in front of the stage. And all you could hear was over the PA. And I'm standing out in the middle of Cobo Hall with a spotlight on me with my guitar. And, and it was the worst moment of my life. And it was okay for a couple of minutes. I tried to kind of scat sing a little bit and then somebody went, Boo! <laughs> and then the whole audience chimed in. Boo! And I had to walk back to the stage. Oh, the walk of shame. And, and I couldn't get up on the stage because I would have to go around the side. So I, because normally the bass player would do a solo after mine and I'd go off stage and come back on stage. So I put my guitar up so I could climb up on stage and my bass player hits one of the buttons and a guitar solo starts. So I didn't have my guitar on anymore. Oh my God. And it was just the most humiliating thing in the world. So. What'd you do? I just walked out the, the room <laughs> and wouldn't come back on stage. So a two-piece band? So two how did the two-piece band? No, 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 we were a five-piece oh, band. Oh, you were a five-piece so band. So they, they finished the rest of the set with the four-piece band. Anyway, we got back to the hotel. 
I went upstairs with Finnegan and we did uh, Coke and Jack Daniels all night and everybody downstairs in my room drank mezcal. And somehow, in a blackout, I came downstairs and had a row with the bass player and I woke up in the hospital with my face out to here and uh, he and I had had a fight and they flew me home for a week and I called them back after five days and I said, listen, I'm, I'm coming back tomorrow. And they said, well, let me call you right back. And I got off the phone about 20 minutes later, they called and Timmy, the singer that I'd added, said, listen, everybody says if you come back and join the band, they quit. So I left the band. I left my own band. And that was the end of Stray Dog. How long did they last without you? They lasted about six weeks yeah. without me. But uh, that's, you know, the price of, of drugs and alcohol. Well, there it is, and and I when I got when I got sober, I didn't think I'd ever lost anything because of my drinking and using. Really, I didn't blame it on that. I blamed it on Al. He wouldn't leave my room because mm -hmm. I got the whole story of what happened, and I tried to kick him out of my room. He wouldn't leave, so I jumped in. So, so you you don't have your band anymore. You're like twenty, I don't know, four or five years old. I'm twenty five, twenty six, maybe. By okay, then. and. Um, that's the only thing you're doing. No, 25. Today. That's how you're making a living. So your record deal's gone. You don't have a band. Record deal's gone. I don't have a band. So I started working as a sideman for other people. I put together a band called the Walden Olsen Band, mm -hmm. keyboard player from Rare Earth, and I, I did a band together for a while. And that that worked locally, but it, we couldn't get a record deal. I went out and toured with Eric Burden. I went out and uh, just did. You know, various gigs, little session gigs, wherever I could do them. So I was a little session with a, a little guy called Little Stevie Wonder at one point, didn't well, you? Well, yeah. How Stevie, did that happen? Well, Stevie Wonder's uh, engineer was my best friend. So I was always hanging around the studio when he was doing songs in the key of life. Mm. And one night he called up me and they couldn't find a guitar player. They tried to get Frank Zappa to come down. Wow. But Zappa wouldn't come down. And so Gary said, let's call Snuffy. So they called me at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I went down and, and did a session with them. And it ended up uh, on a single on his record. So I ended up with a platinum record because of it. But And what, and he, he says a little something to you on the record. Yeah, he says at the very beginning of the record, he says, play it funky as you can, Snuffy. <laughs> I think and he loves that. I love that. And, and I seem to recall there's another story where you got drunker than and shit, and somebody else was driving the car. Oh, well, I wasn't particularly drunk. <laughs> oh, you weren't drunk? But no, it was one night we were there at the studio because I used to hang out down there all the time. And one night you're in a because a break you or didn't something. you and Stevie live? Stevie and I lived in the same apartment. Well, he had a few houses, but his, this girlfriend was living in my apartment building. So I lived on the on the second floor. Stevie lived on the third. And <laughs> Gary, oh, my engineer friend, lived on the the fourth. And. Uh, Stevie tried to teach me how to sing, but it, it was hopeless. He gave up. Uh, but so I would hang out with him a lot down at the studio. And one night we were on a break and we went out and we got in a car and Stevie decided he wanted to drive. Oh, come. This is crazy. It's a true story. So we all piled in the car. I don't know if it was a Rolls or it was some big car. <laughs> and we all piled in, five of us. And the guy in the front seat was saying to Steve, okay, Steve. All right, okay, break, break, break. <laughs> now turn right, 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 more, more. And Stevie drove around that, it was two in the morning, drove around that part of Hollywood over by uh, uh, Crystal Studios. 
You mean more than a block? He, he oh, yeah, no, 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 we went a few blocks. Oh, my God. I mean, he could go straight real good. He could go straight real good. You just have to adjust him. A little to the right, a little to the left. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay, so you played with Stevie, you played with Eric Burden. Um, how long were you out with Eric? That time I was out with Eric for about a year, year and a half, doing a, they had a band called Sun Secrets. Uh, they did a record called Sun Secrets. And um, I guess I went out with him maybe for about a year. What because, was it, Snuffy, what was that like, having had your own band, record deal, playing Madison Square Garden, now you're a side man for, now Eric Burton's huge, but was that transition good for you? Or did, was it, did you resent it? What, how did you feel? I don't think I resented it. I, I was humbled for sure, mm -hmm. but I don't think I resented it. I'm just happy to still be able to play. Okay. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I pretty much screwed the pooch. Although I don't remember ever seeing it like that. I remember seeing it as other people's fault. Ah. I don't remember seeing it as my, being my fault. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd have to go back into my mind where I don't remember, so I can't pull those files up. Mm -hmm. But I toured with Eric and did local bands and did little sessions and, you know, did whatever I could. Then, uh, then I kind of dropped away from Eric and did the Walden Olsen band. And then Eric was going out to do, he was going to do a movie in Berlin. And uh, he asked me if I'd go and, and be in the movie and there was a concert sequence that we had to do. And you're in that movie. Mm -hmm. You are. What's called, it called? Called Comeback. It's not a very good movie, but the concert sequences are great. We the watched The concert it. sequences were great. And uh, so I went and did that with Eric and came back and I toured with Rita Coolidge and you know, just did whatever gig was coming up at the moment. And in 1980, I'm trying to remember, 1980. No, 1980, I started playing a little, uh, doing a few gigs with Eric here and there. And, and then I tried to get sober in January of 1981. Okay, wh why? You know, I went, and went to visit my dad, and there was something different about him. My dad was a practicing alcoholic. And there was something different about him, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And I said, Dad, what, what have you done different? And he said, oh, you know, I lost some weight, and I quit smoking, and I did this, and I quit drinking. And I said, and I said whoa, wait a minute. How did you quit drinking? And he said, well, you know, I got this book, and I went to these meetings, and, uh, you know, I managed to stop drinking. It's the best thing I didn't ever did in my life. So. There was a book involved, and I asked him what the book was, and he showed it to me. And that night, when he uh, went to bed, I raided his medicine cabinet and what was left of his liquor cabinet and read some of that book and decided that I wasn't an alcoholic. The problem was that my wife wouldn't let me drink like a man in my own home. I was married then. And uh, came back and proclaimed that in my home and said, I'm going to be drinking just exactly like I want to at home. That was after reading the book. It was after reading the book. I was sure I wasn't. I didn't have a problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, two weeks later, I came out of a blackout. And uh, Two weeks? Two weeks later. Wow. Two weeks later, I got a cold, and a friend of mine, Tommy Lee Bradley, this great girl singer from Houston, came over, and she said, I have a cold, too. I'll bring some honey and Jack Daniels. So we drank honey and hot Jack Daniels. 
And that's the last thing I remember. And I came to sitting in front of my fireplace with them completely freaked out. I'd thrown my wife out of the house and thrown all her clothes on the lawn and torn out all the phones in the house. And it wasn't pretty, let's just say that. So, you know, I made a phone call to a place called Shake Center. And they directed me where I could get some help uh, to start trying to get sober. It didn't work. It didn't work. I, okay, well, why do you think it didn't work? It didn't work because I wasn't committed. I wasn't really sure I was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. I wasn't convinced. Um, I mean, I thought I maybe drank too much and had a problem here or there, but I just wasn't willing to do it somebody else's way. I mm -hmm. just really wasn't willing to do it somebody else's way. That sounds way. kind of familiar. Yeah. So, uh, so how, 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 uh, no, it's something, so, okay, never mind. I just went, but that's okay. So how did that, um, how did that change for you and when and why that you became willing? Well, you know, I spent that year going kind of in and out and in and out of, uh, sobriety and, and you're playing, you're getting side gigs. I'm doing side gigs. I'm doing little gigs. I'm, you know, keeping my head above water. But I would, I would make money for a couple of months and then spend the next couple of months looking for a gig and go through the money. And, you know, I was living hand to mouth pretty much, mm -hmm. week to week. Mm -hmm. And I got called in uh, October of that year, 1981, to go back out on the road with Eric Burton. And uh, I told my friends about it. My, my sober friends, and they all You had said, sober friends? You, you kept going to meetings? Yeah, mm -hmm. kept going. And I, I had sober friends and I told them I got this offer to go in this gig and every one of them told me, you know, if you go, you will get drunk. And except one guy, one guy, Ron Rudder, said to me, you know, if you don't want to drink, you don't have to. And I said, that's <laughs> my man, he understands me, I'm gonna go on this gig. And I was loaded before I got off the plane in Sydney, Australia because we were doing a full Australian tour. And while I was over there, you know, I was even telling the guys that I wasn't drinking and I would just run back to the dressing room after the, they'd always have my orange juice and tequila sunrises poured out on the stage for everybody when they got back off stage. And Eric was doing acid, and, you know, it was crazy. And so I would run, race backstage and knock down a couple of the tequila sunrises before everybody got back there, and then I drank my orange juice. So, one night I took, uh, am I just dominating this conversation? That, that's quite all right, we want to hear your story. You guys really want to hear all they're, that? They're, they're digging it, are you guys digging it? Send up some love if you're digging it. There's a little delay, it's gonna take us, ah, here we go. Okay. There all you right. go, okay. okay. All right, so uh, one night I took the car, and Tony Bonigle says, he doesn't know why anybody would give me a car, but I took the car <laughs> and went downtown in Sydney to a club and did some drugs and drank and ended up in a blackout and hit and run five cars driving home. I had a girl in the car and she was freaking out. And went up to my hotel room and trashed my hotel room. And uh, I woke up with the management beating on the door saying, what's going on in there? And uh, they came in and I had to clean up my room and pay for it. And the next morning I was so hungover. I, I got up and I put a cap over my head and went down to the restaurant and was trying to eat some breakfast, shovel some eggs down. I was so sick. And my best friend then, a guy named Michael Ruff, 
came and sat down next to me. Michael Ruff, who will be with us, by the way, um, in May. Oh yeah, Michael will tell this story. Probably. Michael, I'm going to get Michael's side of this story. I, you know, I didn't even think of that. I'm going to get to ask Michael his side of this story. I love it. Okay, go ahead. Michael said to me, Snuffy, I, he talked to me for a little bit, and then he said, Snuffy, I love you too much to watch you kill yourself. When we get back to L.A., don't ever call me again. And that really kind of threw me. And uh, it didn't stop me. I ended up uh, staying after that tour was, o was over for a few weeks to produce a record for some Coke dealers. And what finally happened was I couldn't wait to get away from them so I could get in the bar at the airport. And I got through security. It wasn't like it was now. Mm -hmm. This was 1981. Right. It was Christmas Eve, 1981, and I got to the bar and I ordered a double Stoli, hundred proof with orange juice. When it came, I ordered another one. And when the second one came, I ordered a third one and I was halfway through drinking that second one. And I looked in the mirror behind the bar and I didn't recognize myself. And I remember clear as a day, clear as a bell, I said, you know what? You really are an alcoholic. And I believe in that moment that when I admitted I was powerless over alcohol, that I got the grace to stop because that was the last drink I ever had. I got back on the airplane and came back to the United States and uh, But that's not your sober day. How come that's not, not sober day? How come? I still had some drugs left over and on mm -hmm. New Year's Eve uh, I went and did a session with some and had some cocaine and the more cocaine I did the worse I got. Mm -hmm. And I ended up leaving that session and uh, completely out of my mind and drove over my favorite guitar. And, uh, I opened the case and I laughed and I said, that must be God's will. I, I, oh. All this came from, from being sober and in and out and in and out, but getting enough in my mind to... You kind of get ruined for bad behavior. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then on January 11th, I got a phone call to go back out on the road with Eric. And I got off the phone and I called my friend and explained the dilemma. He, he told me basically I had to choose music or life. And I got off the phone and I, you know, I gave it a lot of thought and I called him back and I said, I can't do the tour. And I packed oh. all the guitars away and got my first straight job that I had. What, what was your first straight job? I was doing phone sales. Oh, I just can't. Oh, and I love to have been a fly on that wall. I was selling farmer's screwdrivers and then you try to you get them with the screwdrivers and then you get them to buy a cheap drill press for $800 or something. It was, it was a ripoff, just a ripoff. And how but successful I, were you as a, as a salesman? I made about $75 a week. I was terrible at it. Yeah, terrible. I, can't, I can't picture you as a salesman. And how, how was early sobriety for you? Did you take to it? I loved it, you know, I loved... I mean, it was slow and it was painful and it was, I mean, I thought music was over for me. I really did. I thought that that part of my life was over and I was going to have to find a new life. But, you know, I ended up with relationships that I never dreamed I'd have. I ended up with things that if you'd have told me that first week that I actually got sober, if you said, write down what you really want, I'd have shortchanged myself because I got so many more gifts than... Uh, than I ever dreamed of possible. Friendships, relationships, self-respect. Uh, and it all comes slowly, but. 
How did your career, uh, everybody want, has a lot of questions about that side of the other side of your life. Um, some, uh, Tony's asking if you're in touch with any of the Stray Dog fan members. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I talk to uh, Les Sampson all the time. Uh, well, I say all the time. Mm -hmm. Every six months, I'll, I'll reach him. I went out when I was last in Ireland. I went over and sat in with him. We played a gig at a... Oh, yeah, I saw that photograph. That's fabulous. Yeah, we played a gig at a pub. Um, the bass player and I, I've tried to make that amends. Uh, we get close to getting together. We we made one effort one time, and it just wasn't meant to be, so that doesn't happen. I talked to Louis Cabaza, the keyboard player, from time to time. Uh, Timmy Delane, the singer, kind of, uh, what's the word? He betrayed me. And I had a resentment for a long time. And by the way, that's something I've just completely forgiven him for in the last month. Wow. Because I've been on a real quest to forgive everyone in my life who caused a resentment for me. So, but that's a different story. That's a good part of the story. We'll talk about that too. But okay, so how did you now segue from, by the way, that we have a neighbor dog and I happened to open the window before we started this. And I don't know if you can hear the barking through this entire show. Have you been able to hear? Anyway, he's been barking through the whole thing. I'm sorry about that if you can't hear it. So, so you're, you don't play guitar, you take a straight gig, but then you do go back out on the road. Yeah, I got an opportunity to, to go down and sit in for somebody. So I pulled the guitars out and practiced a little bit. And uh, I went down and did the gig, but I was really afraid that I was going to pick up the guitar and nothing was going to happen. You know, Guitar was always inspiration for me. It wasn't, uh, I mean, I played a lot and I played all the time, but. When, when I played, I went someplace that wasn't me. And I was afraid that wasn't gonna happen. And then it turns out, you know, I'm gonna keep the story fairly short, but I, uh, I had that, I did that gig and it turned out okay and I could play and I, I had some connection with my heart and I continued to. Uh, tell, tell what happened with Bill uh, at that gig, cause that's kind of a beautiful moment. My sponsor, I was so afraid of this gig uh, my dear friend, he and his wife came down to the gig with me. And 10 minutes before the gig, there was maybe 10 or 12 people in the whole club counting the staff. And I don't know how many people, but there weren't very many. And, uh, and I was so nervous that 10 minutes before the, before the first set, Bill lost sight of me and somebody said, oh, he's in the bathroom. And Bill thought I was off doing blow. Mm -hmm. And he, he came into the bathroom and looked and I was, kneeling in front of a toilet praying my butt off because I was afraid nothing was going to come out when I played and you know and it did and to make a long story short what happened was because I was willing to give it up to live I got it back times a hundred with this whole other composing and so okay so how I'm Snuffy's got um, a time constraint today so we I, but I want to get to the story so how did you segue from playing to composing? How did that happen? I was playing a gig with Michael Ruff. I was doing a playing at a place called At My Place, and on Michael Ruff, by the way, was the the MD for well, not for Shaka, Shaka Khan. He, he was the MD for Shaka. He was the MD for Lionel Richie. He was uh, played with David Sanborn. Played with you know wrote for Bonnie Raitt. Yeah, um, big Michael, deal. Michael, big deal. Really talented. Anyway, um, I got, we were doing this gig and an agent came up to me and said, Ry Cooter's priced himself out of the business for television and film. 
would you be interested in scoring television with guitar? And I said, sure. That's what you say. If How much sobriety did you have at that time? Five years. Okay. Just under five years. Mm -hmm. uh, was January 11th was my birthday. This was New Year's Eve, 1986. So I said, yeah. And so I went up and went out for a couple of films and tried to get them and couldn't get them because I'd, I'd never written a cue. And finally, they, uh, I got a call from the agent saying, there's this, this one show that wants to find something really different. They talked to everybody in town, would you meet with them? And I said, sure. And I went down and met with this guy named Scott Wynant, and uh, they were doing a, a little show that they didn't think was gonna get picked up. And I talked to him out of some film, and I went back to my house and, would, and wrote for two weeks where I'd go in and write, and then I'd go in the house and pull the sheets over my head. Did, any, sure did anybody give you any guidance? <clears throat> Scott told me about this band he liked. This, uh, I can't remember the name of the band now, this quirky art band. Mm -hmm. And so I just listened to it. It was acoustic guitar and cello and tambourine. and uh, So I just listened to that and tried to do something that sounded like me in that vein. And were you and, uh, watching television shows? And yeah, like no, no. No. No, I didn't know anything about television music. I didn't mm -hmm. know anything about it. And I finally wrote these cues and I asked uh, all my friends if they'd help me put it in the, record them and put them back in the show so I could show them to these guys that I'd share the show with them and mm -hmm. everybody turned me down. And then a guy named Stuart Levin said, yeah, come over on Thursday. So we went over on Thursday and we recorded these cues and we put them in the tape and I sent it and I never heard from them. And I thought after a couple of weeks, you know, it's a done deal. Turns out they just wanted to know what the guy named Snuffy looked like. That's why they took the meeting. And they, right before they hired another composer, they popped the audio cassette in and they really liked the music, thought it was different. And then they popped the video cassette in and loved the way it worked and they ended up hiring us. And that show was 30 something. First time I ever wrote a cue for any show. And uh, I got another little show right after that uh, because they saw 30 something. And this little show asked me to do their six episodes that were going to air after the Super Bowl. And I did that show, and that was the Wonder Years. And that year, 30-something won the Emmy for Best Drama, and Wonder Years won the Emmy for Best Comedy. And I was doing them both. Not a bad so, run. Okay, so now you said something about they wanted to see what, what the guy named Snuffy. So for those who don't know, how'd you get your name, Snuffy? You weren't born Snuffy. No, I was born William Garrett Walden. But the biggest manufacturer of snuff in the South is a company called Levi Garrett & Son. And my mom's maiden name and my grandfather's last name was Garrett. I just got it as my middle name. So uh, they were always nicknamed Levi or Snuffy growing up. And when I was five years old, I went into a summer camp. And they said, oh, we can't call you Garrett. That's just too formal. We're going to call you Snuffy. And so summers, I'd be Snuffy because my parents sent us away every summer. During the summer I was Snuffy and during the school year I was Garrett and music took over the summers and then music took over my life. So I've just been Snuffy ever since. But but you were you weren't even William, you were Garrett, right? You Garrett. were Garrett too. Okay, so so you do these two shows and you're sober mm -hmm. and are you liking your life? Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I was I Is sobriety know. hard for you? No, staying sober wasn't hard at all. Learning how to do the gig, not knowing, not knowing what I was doing, 
was uh, mind-numbing sometimes. But I just figured I had to work twice as hard to be half as good. So I just worked 14-hour days every day. You know, I have a good friend, Mike Post, who always used to say, you know, you work too hard at this. And Mike will write an hour-long show in an hour and 10 minutes. But it would take me weeks to do the same work. And so I just buckled down and, and worked through it. And I always started from the first year I did it, I had multiple TV series. Okay, and it, at one point, didn't you have like... I had 10 series on one year. How on earth do you make that work? It was crazy. I was doing broad strokes only. I had... You, had, you obviously had people working for you. I had three other composers that were doing... Uh, I was doing two one-hour dramas and two half-hours by myself and doing the other uh, six with other people. Wow. And, uh, and we had, we were, my studio was going 24-7. We had two shifts, 12-hour shifts. And, and you were getting crazy. nominated for Emmys uh, 13. I think you were getting 50, 51 BMI awards. Your son Will was coming to work with you. Yeah, right. You had a lot going on. You're staying sober. Are you, are you as, you have all those shows on the air at the same time. Are you still able to go to meetings and work your program and do all of that? You know, uh, between about 15 years sober and uh, 20 years sober, I started doing what got good rather than what got it good. And I got really uncomfortable. And I ended up calling my friend and saying, you know, what do I do? And he said, I know what your problem is. You need to be doing more. So we committed to doing more and, and I committed to doing less work. And I slowly started reining back work from the time I was about, I don't know, 53, 54. Uh, something that is a huge part of your life that I don't think we talked about at all last time, but being of service, um, which is a huge part of our program, but something that you take very, very seriously. And you take it seriously not only, you take it seriously in your sober life, but you also take it seriously in life. Yes. You've infused your, real li your life with your spiritual life and vice versa. Um, Thanks. It's, it's a beautiful thing to behold and very inspiring and you've motivated me a great deal and I've learned a lot from you in that regard. Is this something, were you brought up with it? Did you, were you, did you always have that nature? Yeah, I always, I think I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to help. Mm -hmm. I wanted to uh, make people feel good. And music does the same thing, you know. Uh, being a service, trying to help somebody get through a tough time in their life is also very rewarding. Mm -hmm. you know? It's getting out of self enough so that you can see the need somewhere else, that you can address that need. It's a harder part, you know, because you tend to be self-serving and self-centered. Uh, that's just my nature. Well, you've, you fight against that nature pretty damn well. Yeah, sometimes I don't. Well, sometimes he doesn't. <laughs> um, so, now we're getting personal. So, so we have to, I said we wouldn't get personal. We're not going to get personal. We're not going to talk about the fact that we're getting on a plane to London in a few days. We're not going to talk about that. But what we are going to talk we're about... We're going to talk about Paris. We're, we're going to talk about Well, you brought up Paris and I was like, right, that's, you, you were there that day. But thank God you were drunk and you don't remember. So it'll be like going there for the first time. No, going, going to working and in, in touring, all you saw was the airport, the Hotel and the gig, you didn't see anything else. Well, we'll be seeing the Louvre. We just, we just we're going on a, on a tour. Okay, so 
So I, I want to quickly, be, be, before we wrap, get to Aaron Sorkin, because everybody really wants to know how that relationship came to be, what you and Aaron were like, and how the West Wing came to be. That whole thing. Because you didn't start with the West Wing. No, no, I started on Sports Night with him. I, I got a call from my agents. I was up in Mammoth taking a vacation. I got a call from my agents. They said, there's this guy, this uh, film screenwriter who's doing a show for television called Sports Night. He loved what you did on 30-something. He really wants to know if you if you do the music for him. And so I said, well, send the script up. So they messengered the script up. And uh, I read the script. And it was 60 pages long. Now, generally, you figure a minute per page. Right. So I figured, oh, this is an hour drama. And I read it, and it was amazing. And I called him back, and I said, I'd absolutely love to do it. And then I found out after I met with Aaron that it was a half-hour TV show. Aaron <laughs> writes twice as many pages for his shows than most normal people. Normal 30 half-hour TV show would be 28, 28 <coughs> pages. So. And Aaron and I just hit it off. You know, Aaron's response to music is purely emotional. He doesn't get technical and he doesn't try to mold me or manipulate. He always just told me what he wanted it to feel like and I tried to address that. And, uh, and we just had a beautiful relationship. The first time he heard the West Wing theme done with an orchestra, you know, I turned around to look at him when we did a run-through and he had a tear running down his eye. And, you know, that was the the best compliment anybody could ever give me that I touched him like that. I think it's enough to snuff when he says that there were times when he didn't know what to do with the scene and he would kind of just turn it over to you and you'd yeah. get that out there. That's quite a beautiful working relationship. Yeah, if you want to know more about all that stuff, it's in a documentary called Up to Snuff. Mark Maxey, it's fabulous. It's available to stream. It's on, I think it's on YouTube actually. You can. Get it on there. It's, on, it's um, streaming available. And it's also fabulous because it's all these people talking about Snuffy and there's lots of clips of him playing and doing all that stuff that we've just uh, gone over. So, okay, so you, you have this beautiful relationship with Aaron. Uh, you're also doing comedy. It, what's, how do you segue into like doing Elle and Roseanne and all these sitcoms when you've now been doing all this drama? How do you learn how to do that? I don't know, you just do it. You're faced with, you know, with 30-something had humor. 30-something had humor and drama. So did the Wonder Years. What was the name of the song in 30-something? Begging for Sex. Begging for Sex. Something he still knows, no, he knows nothing. Something he still he knows has nothing do. about that now. Something he still does every day. No, he doesn't. 30-something uh, and the Wonder Years both had comedy. Mm -hmm. And so I took what I learned from doing those shows into straight comedy, like half-hour comedy. Half-hour comedy is different. Uh, I always called it the difference between art and commerce. You know, half-hour comedy is much more commerce. You just play buttons, ins and outs, transitions. You're not getting into the core of the drama of the moment. And uh, sometimes you do on some shows, but for the most part, the, the role of music is to get you smoothly from one scene to the next as fast as possible. You know, I didn't even notice in, in, until hanging out with you, I never noticed underscore. Because when it's good, you don't, you only it's notice it when it's bad. Yeah. And the stand, one of my favorite things that you've done, which is so uniquely you, nominated, um, one of the many. So, okay, Snuffy, I know you have to go. So before we go, you're at this stage in your life where you've had 
massive success. You've done all of these incredible things. You've gotten to be a rock star. You've gotten to be yeah. Emmy Award winners. No, you played Madison Square Garden when yeah, you were 23. I mean, you know, come on. You, you played with Shaka and Donna Summer and Eric Burton and all these people, and you've played stadiums and arenas and festivals and done all these things. You've composed hundreds, a hundred plus television shows. At this stage in your life, and you're sober, 41 years, at this stage in your life, looking ahead, what would you like your life to be like now? God, I want to, you know, I still want to play. I want to play for fun because I love performing live. Uh, I, I, I've got some work coming up. I've got one show still on the air, SEAL Team, that's uh, still on the air. Mm -hmm. Although I'm not too involved in it anymore. I executive produce it more than anything. I've got a couple of things that have come up. One with Norman and one with uh, another friend. Things that have come up about me coming in and being not only a composer, but a music supervisor in a way. That's interesting. I'm doing some records for friends, but mostly I just want to do the things I love doing. And what I've really missed over the whole COVID period is performing live, mm -hmm. playing with musicians. It was so amazing to watch you go up there with, with Jerry Lopez and, and Santa Fe. And, I was petrified. And, well, you di it did not show at all. And um, you were so in your... And the thing that was wonderful to see is that Snuffy hasn't been playing that much around, much more so now. But what you discovered is that uh, it's in your DNA. It's just well, there, all that muscle memory, all those 60 hours. years of experience doesn't mm -hmm. go away. I mean, you know, I don't have the chops and I don't play as fast and I don't play as loud, or maybe I play as loud, but I don't play as fast. Uh, but uh, yeah, the connection to my heart is still 100% there. Now it's just a matter of getting the rust off the off the cards to will. to have that pure expression. Yeah, but I, I just need to play two or three hours. Well, so aside from from playing and doing that again, what about life at this stage of life? Oh, it's bucket list stuff. I mean, I'm I'm facing. Uh, I have some physical issues. I, I got diagnosed with uh, Parkinson's not too long ago, so. You know, I'm on the fast track for getting all the things I want to do. Vicky and I are going to be traveling, and you know, I what, want to do What does do that look things. like besides going to London and Paris? Which, what, what, what else is on that bucket list that you'd like to do, life-wise? I don't know. Travel, spend more time uh, loving all my friends and playing music with them, and you know, just turning up the joy in the monitors more than anything. That's really kind of what it's about. That sounds like a perfect place to uh, to give it a wrap. Turning up the joy in the monitors, I like that, and I get I get to to uh, be the recipient and turn up some of that joy myself. Snuffy, thank you for being so lovely, and uh, Timothy Busfield. You know, he said You're he, next. he said he loves you even more for uh, filling in for <laughs> Um Thank you for doing this. You know, it was the last time you did this. You were filling in for for Terry. He had gotten sick and. Um, and you've yeah, said, you just used me as a sub. He's he's my he's my sub. Um, house sub. Ha the house the house sub. Um, thank you all for being here with us. One of us is going to have to get I'm up and turn off the, the camera. Um, uh, we'll be gone for a few weeks, but when we come back, uh, Tommy Chong will be with us on uh, Game Changers. And uh, thanks, Snuffy. Thank you all. See you soon.